Okay, people. <laughs> okay, page twenty three. Thanks, man. Oh, is, is the other uh, VCA form somewhere? Somebody got that the, the other the VCA form. Thank you. Thanks. So, page twenty-three. Who wrote the Torah? Um, and what I'm doing here is raising a question that, that well, well, in fact, most of the things today. Um, uh, I'm opening up questions. There will be things that we'll be coming to look at uh, at various points during the course. Um, I was giving you short answers to lots of, or, or uh, straight statements about lots of questions in the first half this evening. Uh, there will be issues that we, uh, we, we keep coming at. Uh, and this is a question that you'll need to have floating around your mind uh, during the uh, five weeks. Who wrote the Torah? One, the traditional view. Moses wrote it. That's what your pastor told you. Uh, and that's what it tells you if you've got a King James Bible. Because at the top of the page it says um, the first book of Moses called Genesis. Um, and talking in those terms corresponds to the way that the New Testament talks. It, um, as in that story about Jesus that I read from just now. Uh, Jesus talked about Moses. The advantage of thinking of Moses as the author of the Pentateuch is that it links the Torah with a great and key figure in Israel. And we like to link things with great men. And I mean men, really, I think, probably. Uh, and if you can uh, link the Torah with somebody as important as Moses, then that buttresses the Torah's authority. And I think often for people that's how it works, that the Pentateuch has authority because Moses wrote it. Um, and if Moses didn't write it, would it still have authority? And maybe most important of all, uh, the view that Moses wrote the Pentateuch undergirds the historical value of the Torah. It's important that the kind of things that the Torah uh, talks about did actually happen. And for four-fifths of them, at least, uh, Moses was around and is the best possible person to have written the story. The trouble is, is there any evidence uh, for Moses having written the Torah? The Torah does not itself say, uh, in the way that Luke's Gospel and John's Gospel do, uh, I'm the guy who wrote it, um, this is why I wrote it. It doesn't give you anything like the beginning of Luke's Gospel or the end of John's Gospel. 
there's, there's nothing from outside, as it were, from the time, from within Old Testament times, that could give you that kind of information. And there are various difficulties that the idea that Moses wrote the Pentateuch um, raises. Uh, they, they don't necessarily include the statement that Moses was the most humble man who ever lived, which you might think deconstructs. This is Moses telling me he's the meekest man who ever lived. Um, but they do include the way, for instance, in which Genesis will talk about things that, that relate to long after Moses' day. So it will talk about Ur, where Abraham came from, as being Ur of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans weren't there in Moses' time. The Chaldeans were there centuries later. So for Israelites living later, it made sense to talk about Ur of the Chaldeans. But it isn't what Moses would have written because they weren't there. There are questions then that, that, kind, those, kind, that kind, those kind of data about the Pentateuch um, raise if you think in terms of Moses as the author. As a, as a consequence of difficulties of that kind, there arose um, the critical view that the Pentateuch came into existence as a result of the work of some guys who put it together after the exile um, who had got available to them various collections of laws the laws in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, uh, and various uh, stories and collections of stories, uh, and they'd got their imagination. Um, and they produced the Torah out of the combination of those. That, that critical view, uh, which came to be the kind of norm in the world of scholarship in the, during the 19th century, um, is a reaction to the first view. It starts from the difficulties of the first view, the fact that the... Um, Pentateuch talks about things that um, happened after Moses' day. Um, it starts from the nature of the material itself um, and asks, well, how might the Pentateuch have come into existence? Um, and I think that one influential uh, bit uh, of evidence that it takes into account is the description of Ezra after the exile um, bringing the Torah um, from Mesopotamia uh, Persia, to Jerusalem. Aha! Is this when the Torah comes into existence? Now, if you take that kind of view, that does justice to aspects of the complexity of the text. For instance, we'll be finding how there are many stories that are told more than once. Um, and there are many topics in the laws that get talked about more than once. If some guys, much later on, are compiling the Pentateuch, uh, out of various materials available to them, uh, then um, that would explain the, the data that the Pentateuch presents us with when it does give us several versions of stories or several versions of laws. And it would fit with those indications of a, late, of, of a date later than Moses that I referred to. Sometimes uh, an approach of this kind can enable us to link the Torah with particular historical contexts. Um, in a way, I gave you an example by talking about the notion that the Torah, separate from what follows, uh, might itself belong in the exile. You can imagine people reading the, the Torah in the exile. And um, later on this evening and or on Wednesday, uh, I'll talk about the way in which when you read the Genesis 1 creation story against the context of the exile, all sorts of things fall into place. That way of understanding how the Pentateuch came into existence corresponds to the way that we know some books were written. 
in the ancient world. In the 2nd century, Tatian was 2nd century, wasn't it, Jim? Jim is here as our um, representative of um, early Christian doctrine. Sure. Whoa! That was a bit equivocal. Anyway, there, there was somebody called Tatian, you'll agree with that. Yeah. Uh, Tatian was a Syrian <laughs> church father, I think, in the 2nd century, who um, decided... Um, that it was a bit inconvenient to have four Gospels. Just a bit of a nuisance, really, four Gospels, isn't it? Uh, and he turned them into one. That solves a lot of problems. Um, and in the Syrian church, for quite a while, the, the a one harmony of the Gospels, the Gospels turned into one, was the canonical, the scriptural version of the Gospels. Now, the um, standard critical view of the Pentateuch that I'm talking about is, in effect, that... The Pentateuch came into existence by the same kind of process whereby Tatian produced a harmony of the Gospels. It's a kind of, it, it was evidently, it was a way in which, uh, it was a natural way to produce a, a book in the ancient world. Well, actually, it's the, you, you know all about it because it's the way you write a paper, isn't it? I mean, you go and write three, read, read three bits of things and then you um, uh, take bits from each of them, cut and paste off the, pen, off the uh, internet. Uh, and and that's, how, that's, that's how a paper comes... Well, not you, but the guy in... The, your roommate. That's how your roommate writes papers, right? And an advantage of this view, uh, fourthly, is that it provides grounds for dating the material that don't depend on faith. See, that um, the advantages of the Moses view are great, but you have to make this leap of faith at the beginning, that it was Moses. Everything else then follows. The critical view is, is not making any assumptions of that kind, and therefore any... Um, things that it does end up being able to tell you about the dating of the material or the things that happened um, are established on critical grounds uh, rather than uh, on grounds of faith. But the disadvantage of the critical view, that's more, of that critical view that's much more obvious now than it was, say, 30 years ago, uh, is that there isn't much evidence for that happening either. Uh, for a century, there was a, a, a critical consensus about the process whereby the Pentateuch came, in, came into existence, which you can associate with the letters J-E-D-P. Don't worry about who they were for now. Uh, we'll come back to them. But they are the equivalent of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Very conveniently, there are four of them. Um, and for a century, there was pretty much of agreement amongst critical scholars um, that the Pentateuch came into existence through the compiling of these four earlier versions of the story. But for one reason or another, uh, towards the end of the 20th century, if you like, the emperor lost his clothes. You know the story about the boy who said, but the emperor's got no clothes on. Um, the, uh, the Pentateuch, this, this theory of, about the Pentateuch's origins, has never got clothes. There was never really solid evidence for it. It was a hypothesis. It was a consensus through all the scholarly world, or pretty much all the scholarly world, I mean all the non-conservative scholarly world, uh, agreed about. Um, but, but, but that's what it was, rather than something that you could provide, you could provide hard evidence for. Um, and it itself quite often left uh, ends untied. And when you tried to de-interweave J, E, D and P, and as it were, produce the four Gospels again out of them, you couldn't always do it, and it didn't work right. It was messy. And so, hello. Hi. Um, what, what does J stand for? Uh, don't worry about it now. We'll do it in a few weeks. Okay. Trust me. We'll do it. <laughs> um, 
At the end of the 20th century, uh, maybe because it was the end of the 20th century and people were full of millennial, millennial anxiety, that consensus fell apart. Um, people saw uh, little boys uh, started saying, the emperor's got no clothes. Uh, and other people said, oh, you're right, really, now you come to think about it. Uh, and so there's been uh, chaos, really, uh, over the question, how did the Pentateuch come into existence over the past um, quarter century? or so third of a century, say, um, with various people expanding different theories, um, and none of them really coming to achieve a consensus in the way that JEDP achieved a consensus for 100 years. Uh, and when we come to it later on, when I tell you who J and D and D, J and D and D, J and E and D and P were, um, I'll tell you also about some of the theories that have been around uh, over the past um, quarter or third of a century. Um, but it's no coincidence that that um, crisis with regard to the critical view uh, coincided uh, with the development of what we call postmodernity. Um, and so the postmodern view about who wrote the Pentateuch is, we don't know. That makes life easier, doesn't it? <laughs> um, which is uh, a reaction to the second view. It starts from the difficulties of the second view, that is, um, that there isn't the evidence for that theory that everybody had believed for 100 years, and there are ways in which the theory doesn't match the data, or the data don't match the theory. Uh, and yet, um, the uh, people who had become disenchanted with the critical view knew that, th that that didn't mean you simply went back to the first view, to the pre-modern view, the traditional view, because everybody knew that the, the problems about that view were real, so the postmodern view uh, that starts from, the starts from the difficulties of the critical view but is also still aware of the difficulties of the first view so knows that the, you can't go backwards. Somehow you have to go forwards. Um, but at the moment we, nobody can see how to go forwards uh, or at least nobody can convince everybody else about how to go forwards with the, regard to the answer to that question. Um, and so um, my own view is that, is that it's best simply to uh, live with the fact that we don't know who wrote the Pentateuch. The advantage of doing that, uh, as I put on the sheet here, is that, that that means that we focus more on the text itself than on its origins. An awful lot of the time in study uh, of the Pentateuch, the focus is on where did it come from, who wrote it, how, what date does this bit um, come from and so on, at the expense of actually reading it. Uh, and uh, so in, in the way that I run the course, we shall spend much more time reading the text uh, than we shall uh, asking those questions about its origins. And so this approach focuses on what can be known from the text rather than on questions that run into the sand. That's the trouble with the questions about origins. Um, you, you end up, as it were, in the sand or in a marsh, in a bog, um, wondering, not, not quite able to remember why you climbed into this marsh, but with no idea about how to get out. The uh, postmodern view focuses on uh, the readers of the Pentateuch, uh, its original readers, but without wanting to know what century they belonged to. As I've said already, it's very important to do that 
to be asking what the, Pas what the Passover story would have meant to um, an Israelite, but also focusing on the contemporary readers uh, of the story uh, as, as ourselves, people who might have access to its, what it's got to say, even though we don't know when it was written. And uh, a postmodern view, at least may, presuppose faith rather than seeking to buttress faith, as the traditional view does, or suspending faith, as the critical view does. Now, you don't have to decide which of those is right tonight. Uh, I offer you that as a kind of map of the options that are um, around, uh, so that as you're reading um, things during the quarter, as you're reading scriptures itself, uh, but also as you're reading uh, scholarly books, um, you can see the nature of the debate that is around um, and maybe be feeling your way towards deciding what you think yourself. Well, then it says at the bottom, a student commented with regard to Old Testament 502, the prophet's course, in an evaluation, this is a course in how to read the prophets like Golden Gay. How would someone else read them? For instance, a professor at Biola or Claremont or Dallas, and I've added, or Trinity or Westminster. What is Golden Gay's hermeneutic? Supposing he was to adapt that course, that question, for the Pentateuch. Here are some answers insofar as I know them. Of course, never believe people when they tell you what their presuppositions are. Not because we are dishonest, but because we don't actually know what our presuppositions are. Most of the, not just, I don't just mean professors, any of, any of us. Uh, it's all we ought to try to be honest. But half the time you don't know why you think and what you think, why, why you think what you think and so on. But insofar as I know, um, then... Um, my hermeneutic, my assumptions about the Pentateuch that at different points contrast with um, what somebody uh, would likely think if they were on the faculty at Biola or Claremont or Dallas or Trinity or Westminster are that the Pentateuch uh, first is reliable in the sense that it tells you a story uh, whose historicity you can basically accept um, Abraham and co existed that may, you may think that's obvious but not everybody does the Exodus happened. You may think that's obvious. Not everybody does. It's reliable in that sense. But not necessarily inerrant. Maybe it's inerrant. I don't know because the Bible doesn't actually tell you whether it's inerrant. And I'm just a simple uh, Bible-believing Christian feminist. Uh, and I just believe what the Bible says about anything. Uh, and they laugh much more at that in England. They don't, you don't laugh here. Um, if ever I say anything that sounds as if it was designed to be funny, it probably was designed to be funny. And there are lots of things I'll say that were designed to be funny, but they probably aren't funny, so I'm not going to worry about it. The Bible doesn't tell you whether it's inerrant or not. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Um, uh, I do reckon we've got a basis in God's grace and love to us for reckoning that it's reliable enough. Uh, but um, I don't, uh, it doesn't need to be inerrant in order for it um, to, be what, to, to do what God wants it to do. It's reliable. It's addressed to its day. It's not predicting Christ. Be aware that when you're reading Christ into it, that's what you're doing, you're reading Christ into it. It's God's word to, pe to his people um, that is significant for us precisely because of the way that God was speaking to people um, in their own day. It's wholly God's word. It's not just human. There's nothing in it that's there because God failed to stop somebody making a mistake. All the things that are there are things that God uh, was agreeable to having there. As I said already, I think that some of them, God, God uh, 
uh, are, are closer to God's ultimate vision than others, than others that allow for, for human hardness of heart. But it's wholly God's word. It's not just human and is not spoiled by, being, by human sinfulness. It's wholly applicable today. It's not confined to other dispensations, as dispensationalism traditionally reckons, and as often in practice uh, evangelicals reckon. Okay, that was what God said then, but it, hasn't, it isn't what God says now. It, it related to a, when God was relating to people in different sort of ways. No, it's, a, it's wholly applicable now, today. And it's designed to govern our theological framework, not to be subject to it. Now, I often think that uh, what um, students think I'm here for is to reassure them that, t that, that the Bible doesn't say anything that they didn't think already. Uh, and that whenever it says something that, that we don't like, I can explain how it doesn't mean it. Um, that's not my policy. Uh, my policy, I hope, is to, is, is to reckon that when I find something in the Bible that's objectionable, there's a problem about me. Um, and that's the stance uh, I invite you uh, to take to it too. That the Bible in general, and the Pentateuch in particular, is designed to govern our theological framework, not to be subject to it. Uh, you don't have to believe any of those things. I'm just telling you those are the things that I think I believe uh, and that I hope uh, will come out in the way that the course goes. Um, but you don't have to um, agree with the professor in order to get a good grade for a paper. It may not even help. Um, okay, over the page. What the Torah did for Israel. Page 24. What the Torah did for Israel. And this is... This kind of overlaps with uh, the nature of the Torah, uh, what the Pentateuch is, uh, the, the six um, kind of episodes in it that I talked about just now. But it looks at it from Israel's point of view. If this is God's word to his people in Old Testament times, never mind about when it was written, but supposing you are Ezra or Nehemiah or David uh, or Josiah or Isaiah or Ruth or somebody... Um, what is this story designed to do for you? And here are three bits of answer. First, um, so, so when I talk about our here, it, it, it told the story of how our ancestors got from, Bab got from Babylon to the edge of the land. I'm trying to put myself into the position of, an, of Israelites. That The we here is not we Christians today. It's, it's as it were, we, we, we Israelites if we've been Israelites. What the Torah and the, as it then did for us as Israelites is, first, it told the story of how our, how our ancestors got from Babylon to the edge of the land. The, the Pentateuch is half of the story from Genesis to Kings. As I say, it ends rather artificially with Deuteronomy. Uh, Joshua and Judges and Samuel and Kings carry on the same story. Um, When you get to the end of Deuteronomy, as I say, you know there must be another season um, of this series because it hasn't come to an end yet. And when you get to the end of Joshua, it's the same and the same at the end of Joshua. It keeps not coming to an end. You're keeping to having to watch again next fall until you get to the end of Kings 
And then it is perhaps as lost will be. I don't know whether they'll manage to sew up all the, tie up all the ends. But when you get to the end of Kings, the only way in which you know there's no more series is you turn over the page and you get... Anybody know? Oh, go on, guess what you get after the end of Kings. First and second Chronicles. And who is the first person mentioned in Chronicles? Do you know that as well? It's Adam. So, well, you know that you've, you're starting again then, don't you? This is going to be, you know, okay. And, and what Chronicles, Ezra Nehemiah does, or, or rather what Chronicles does, is go through the entire story again at high speed. Why you'd want that? That's the writings course. I'm not going to tell you about that in the, in the Pentateuch course. But you know you've come to an end. In the Hebrew Bible, things come in a different order. Anybody know what comes after kings in the Hebrew Bible? Sorry? It's Isaiah. Um, the, because, because after Genesis to Kings, you get the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. But again, you know when you turn over from Kings to Isaiah, then you obviously aren't going to get any more of this story. Genesis to Kings is one gargantuan story that's chopped in half after Deuteronomy. Um, Genesis to Deuteronomy tells you how God got Israel from creation and then from Babylon to the edge of the promised land Joshua to Kings tells, tells how, they, how they went back again it's a rather gloomy story really actually because at the end of Kings they end up back in the Babylon from which Abraham got taken but the story then does explain to you as an Israelite um, the answers to some questions that you might have like how do we as Israelites relate to the rest of the world? Genesis 1 to 11 tells you about that. It tells you about how it's not just for your sake that God is involved with you, but for the world's sake. God's, God's vision is for the whole world, not just for us. The Pentateuch answers for you the question, is this land really ours? Especially, is it really ours when we're not in it, when we're in exile? So Genesis, Genesis 12 to 50 tells you the story of how God promised the land to Abraham and builds up your conviction that this land really does uh, belong to you. And that if you're outside of it, God is going to take you back into it. The Pentateuch tells you the answer to the question, what kind of people were we? The kind of people that we were, according to the first half of Exodus, is a crowd of slaves or serfs uh, oppressed in a foreign land. Just remember that's, all, that's what you were. You weren't very impressive. And by the way, just remember what it was like to be a serf, to be a slave, um, when you relate to people who are servants or serfs or slaves in your own context. It deals at great length with the question, are we free to do as we like now? To which the short answer is, uh, no. <laughs> Well, the long, and the long answer occupies the second half of Exodus and the whole of Leviticus and bits of Numbers, as well as Deuteronomy. The Israelites in Egypt um, were in the service of Pharaoh and God brought them out in order that they should be in the service of God. The argument is very like the argument of Romans, where we were servants of sin, but now we're servants of righteousness. We're not free to do what we like. And it answers the question... What kind of people are we now? And when you read those stories in Exodus, but especially in Numbers, about their rebellions and their, desire, their, their, their desire, their wish that they weren't the people of God, and their desire to go back into Egypt, yeah, we find out what kind of people we are. You can see how those stories 
um, hold up a mirror to the Israelites as well as, the, as they hold up a mirror to the Christian churches in the way that Paul talks in 1 Corinthians. The Pentateuch then tells us as Israelites the story of how our ancestors got from Babylon to the edge of the land and answers questions that, that either we do ask or that we ought to ask. When you think about this relationship with the New Testament, then you can think of it um, as a bit like the beginning of John's Gospel, where John, uh, in the first half of John chapter 1, tells you about the first stages of God's Word being at work in the world, and how the world um, didn't understand or didn't manage to squash it, uh, but God carried on being at work with his people. Or, here's another thing that the, that the Torah does for Israel, did for Israel did for us as Israelites. It related the story of how our ancestors got, how, it related the history of how our ancestors got from Babylon to the edge of the land. The first one was, it told the story of how our ancestors got from Babylon to the edge of the land. But a different point is, is, is that it related the history of how our ancestors got from Babylon to the edge of the land. Um, and if you're an Israelite, then maybe you would have been interested in the history of how that went on in two senses, and certainly we'll be interested, um, it's natural for us to be interested in looking at that history in these two, two senses, looking at the Torah historically in two senses. Looking for the historical context of the story, because it is, as I said just now, a story addressed to an audience. And it wasn't originally addressed to us, though it is, as it were, addressed to us by extension. It was a story addressed to Israelites. We can't necessarily say in what particular century it was written, but we can imagine it or the stories that it contains having significance for Israelites in different historical contexts. There is that fact of its ending up with, people outside, with the people outside the land. There is the difference between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, which we'll look at uh, on Wednesday, uh, in terms of them bringing different messages to audiences, uh, to readerships who live in different contexts. So if you can get a sense of the historical context to which a story speaks, then you learn something about what the story is about. Or we'll be looking at the differences between, say, the laws in Exodus and the laws in Deuteronomy, when they'll cover the same areas and say different things because different historical contexts um, mean that God, sp God speaks to people in different um, ways, with different content, in different contexts. It's a historical book that we look at historically in the sense of looking for its historical context. It's also uh, historical in the sense that we look for its historical content. That is, we, want to know, we do want to know what happened. And we want to know, um, in order to be able to give a reason for the faith that is in us, to use 1 Peter's expression. And in order to give a reason for the faith that we have in us as Israelites, we know that historicity matters. It matters that things happened. Think again about those questions that Israelites might ask. A question like, is the land really ours? The answer the story gives is that God made, made promises to Abraham. But if Abraham never existed, then God didn't make promises to him. So something about the historical nature of this stuff matters, as it were, to me as an Israelite. I know Yahweh as the God who brought us out of Egypt. But if God never brought us out of Egypt, who is Yahweh? 
because the definition of Yahweh is as the God who did that. So I wouldn't know who Yahweh was if it hadn't been, uh, if, it, if it weren't for Yahweh's um, bringing us out of Egypt. Historicity matters. The nature of this um, concern with history, you can compare with the beginning of Matthew in terms of the New Testament over against John. Matthew starts with 17 verses of genealogy, really compressed, um, a really compressed account of uh, the history that lies behind Jesus. This time, rather like the, um, the chop, 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 chop account of what happened last week in whatever you're watching in TV, that you get at the very beginning um, of uh, an episode quite often. Um, so Matthew gives you that kind of account of the Old Testament story in giving you the entire Old Testament story in 17 verses. Who Jesus is is established by who he came, where he came from. I knew a woman who was converted through the first 17 chapters of Matthew's Gospel, the first 17 verses of Matthew's Gospel, because she was Jewish. And they established for her the fact that Jesus himself was a Jew, that he could be her Messiah. Um, but that, the account of where Jesus came from, is basically historical. Uh, matters then to uh, the assertion that Jesus is the Messiah. The Old Testament relates the history of how our, Israel, our ancestors as Israelites got from Babylon to the edge of the land. And then thirdly, what the Torah did for us was that it expounded the demand that arose from our ancestors having got to the edge of the land. I've talked about the Torah as a story, as a gospel. Uh, another way to put that is to point out how the framework of the Torah is in indicatives. Indicatives are statements like, I came to class this evening. Uh, some people claim at 5 o'clock because they didn't know that the class was going to be at 6.30. This afternoon I sat on the patio. I sat by the pool. I'm not going to tell you anything else. These are all indicative statements about things that happened. Um, and the Torah, like the gospel story, is, is a statement that takes that you have to tell in indicative verbs. God so loved the world that he gave. God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. Um, the framework of the Torah is indicative, but it is dominated by imperatives. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods but me. You shall not make a graven image. The imperatives in terms of, the, of quantity, dominate the Torah. The relationship, uh, both the, the, the imperatives, both the indicatives and the imperatives are important, and their interrelationship is important. Uh, it, the question, it's a bit like the question about um, incorporating Q into the Gospels. That is, it's significant that Q was not put into the canon on its own, but only within the, within a gospel, within the Gospels. If you have no idea what that means, don't worry about it. One day you will discover, but if you know about what that means, maybe you can see the analogy uh, with the way in which the, um, the, the law material, the instruction material, is set into the, as it were, gospel narrative material uh, within the Pentateuch. The Torah's framework is indicatives, but it is dominated by imperatives. It's not a, so that's a, another way of saying that the Pentateuch is not uh, a legal document. It's not law. E.P. Sanders' helpful ex, uh, expression, phrase to describe it, is as covenantal gnomism. Gnomism is, that, is a word from that word nomos that means law. 
So if you said that Old Testament faith was no mystic, you would mean it was legalistic, it would be law. But Sanders, looking at the Judaism of Jesus' day, but you, and you can then extend this to the Old Testament, uh, would say, no, it's not gnomism, it's cover- or, it's, or it's only gnomism in the sense that it's covenantal gnomism. That is, God entered into a covenant relationship with his people, and God does expect obedience, but the obedience is a consequence of being in the covenant. You don't obey in order to get into a covenant. God makes a covenant with you in order to get you to obey. The, the obedience takes place within the context of that covenant relationship. So all these imperatives within the Torah tell us as Israelites what it means to live in covenant. So it tells us things like how to worship. Not very surprising. How to relate to one another. Not at all surprising. How to make war. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) How to treat the needy. Not very surprising. How to safeguard family life. It talks about all sorts of issues some of which it's not surprising to find God, God giving us instruction about, some of which it's more surprising to find God giving us instruction about. But all of them are part of what it means to be um, the, the, covenant, the covenant community. And if you're going to relate that to a gospel, then it's a bit like, it a bit, it a bit fits with Luke's understanding of Israel, where it was the Torah that shaped the community, that shaped Jesus. Mary and Joseph were people who were able to be Jesus' parents and to bring him up in the love and fear of the Lord because they belonged to a Torah-shaped community. The Torah shaped the community that shaped the community that shaped Jesus. The Torah shaped the community that prepared the way for Jesus. Elizabeth and Zechariah, the parents of John the Baptist, were able to be the parents of the one who would prepare the way for Jesus because they were Torah-shaped, as you can tell from reading their story. And the Torah shaped the community that welcomed Jesus. As you can see when you read the stories about Simeon and Anna, also in Luke chapters 1 and 2. So there's John and Matthew and uh, Luke. um, And Mark I've already mentioned, but I'll put it in again there. Um, If you're looking for a way of relating the Pentateuch to Mark's Gospel... Uh, then what Mark 10 shows us is how Jesus helps us to understand the Torah um, by giving us hermeneutical clues like that one about the relationship between God's vision and the way that God makes allowance for hardness of heart, as well as on another occasion giving you a kind of tip like all the law and the prophets, I'll forget the prophets because we're not interested in them, this course, so all the law depends on two commands from within the law. Love God and love your neighbour. If you're not sure what any command is about, then ask the question within the Torah, ask the question, what's it got to do with loving God or loving your neighbour? Another clue that Jesus provides uh, for our interpretation of the Pentateuch. Oh, here's another student comment at the bottom. I bitched and moaned throughout the quarter that I was not grasping the meaning of the Pentateuch, even though I was putting in the hours doing the impossibly difficult homework and reading. Cutting myself short because it's the first time that I, that I have, must have, been, must have been that I've read the Torah. That all changed in the last class. I was stunned when during the reading by the students of all the varied passages, I, I, got peop- I sometimes get people at the end to, to say, what's, what's the one verse or, uh, that's come to them during the water? 
Not only did I recognize them, but also the meaning behind the passage in current and past contexts, and I felt I knew why the students were reading them. This was again affirmed when I read through the 119 questions and answers. That's because another thing you do at the, I do at the end is get you the chance to give you the chance to say what are the questions you're left with, and obviously this time there were 119. Uh, and I think it must have been on that occasion for some reason. I, I did a lot of the answers. Uh, I did a lot of the answers online or as emails or something. Not only understanding why the questions were being asked, but also being able to grasp somewhat behind the, the logic behind the answers. So if over the next two or three weeks you, have, you, you are threatened by despair because it's all fog, hold on. It may all come together in the last class. May. <laughs> Um, I think that now, uh, we'll come to the outline of Old Testament history in a minute, but, but I think to, to for, a sake, for, for sake of a change, uh, we'll do the reading of Genesis 1. Uh, if you've got the um, syllabus, then I think it's pages 26 and 27, where I've given you the text of Genesis 1. Uh, but of course, if you've got a Bible online or hard copy, then that's just as good. Um, well, maybe it's not, because one of my friends who teaches manuscript Bible reading, Bible study, always says, first thing to do when you're reading a passage is print it out off the internet, because then it looks different, um, and you can scroll on it, and you might be a bit kind of like this about scrolling on the Bible. So, up to you whether what version, what, what way you look at it. What I want you to, you to, you to do uh, for 10 minutes uh, is to read uh, Genesis 1, and jot some things down on the next page, page 28. It says at the top of there, read Genesis 1 to chapter 2, verse 3. When I say Genesis 1, I mean 1, 1 to 2, 3, because really the beginning of chapter 2 of Genesis is the end of chapter 1. Uh, the Bible is inspired, but the chapter divisions aren't. Uh, they were put in by an Archbishop of Canterbury. It's always the British who are at fault um, in the 14th century or something, and sometimes they're okay, but usually not. Uh, and, and so, rather nicely, um, the Bible starts off with a stupid chapter break. Um, so when I say Genesis 1, I mean 1, 1 to 2, 3. Read that and imagine you're reading for the first time. What would strike you about it? What words and themes recur? What emphases do these suggest? How does it work as a narrative? That is, what's its kind of plot? What's its structure? Where is its high point? This is a trick question. Well... Read it for uh, a few minutes and jot some things down and we'll do that till just after nine. Okay? Go.